Well, I thought uh, we should do one last glance at chapter 5 of Matthew. Nobody was here last week from that is here today. Was here. Were you here I last week? You were. All right. Can you remind me where we left off in Matthew 5? We might have gotten through the chapter. Those listening online would know. <laughs> There's nothing in secret anymore. We may have gotten through it. I think we it's did. Not at the very end, like verse 38 or 43, somewhere around. Okay. Um, that's where I want to pick up then. So uh, let's start with verse 43. We we did talk about this last week, I remember, but I would like to start here. Kim, would you read verses 43 to 48, please? Mm-hmm. You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven, for he maketh his his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not ever do not even the publicans do the, the same. And if ye salute your brethren only, what do you more than theirs? Do not even the publicans do so. Be ye therefore perfect as your father is perfect, which is in heaven. Um, the King James Version has extra lines, doesn't it? Bless those who curse you. Uh, pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. And for years I wondered where. I had those lines memorized, and I was like, every time I'd read my Bible, they're not there. And so I kept thinking it must be Luke that I was had memorized, and I went to Luke, and Luke had some of those lines, but not all of them. Uh, and what we have here is a variant. And apparently... Uh, the modern versions recognize, the translators of the modern versions recognize that this is a very more, much more recent, recent is qualitative, of course, uh, or relative, I should say, because recent can mean uh, second or third century as opposed to first or second century. At any rate, they realize it probably was not in the original manuscripts. Some scribe got carried away start adding that's that's the only thing we can know I you know it's possible that it works the other way but uh, probably it's just love your enemies pray for those who persecute you or harass you as my version has uh, that you you may be acting as children of your father in heaven the thing I want to stress in here is that Jesus understood the law the real keeping of the law in these terms that the people who really keep the law love their enemies. And if they don't love their enemies, they're no, they're no different than people who don't keep the law. So this is where Jesus draws the line in the, in the tables of stone, you might say. 
between those who keep the law and those who don't. Uh, which I have to ask the question, how does that relate to salvation? Well, if you're being more like Christ, then you're close, have a close relationship and you're more like him. Which means... we're separated from Christ. Which means that salvation involves relationship. Something that I don't think we stress enough. Okay, let's go to chapter 6. Just a thought that the whole controversy is about whether we are safe to save. And if we don't come out different than what the world says, are we safe to save? Mm-hmm. It's just... Well, if don't we don't if, if we don't love our enemies, our enemies might be in heaven, and we might end up being their neighbors. <laughs> and if we don't love them, that puts us in a really difficult situation. <laughs> so let's uh, now go to Matthew 6. And Matthew 6 is really about worship. Wholehearted worship. Uh, public worship versus private worship. Uh, Matthew, would you read verses 1 to 4, please? Take heed that you do not hear alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Don't practice your religion in front of people, as my version has it, to draw their attention. I don't know if this is the place to discuss what is often happens in churches where we have a spotlight on people and the singers really are kind of drawing attention to themselves. <laughs> what do we do with that? That's not to say that that musicians in the past have never done that. I suspect they've done it in more subtle ways. Uh, there is something about music performance that tends to lend itself to that. It's, it tends to be showmanship. It tends to be uh, a, the temptation is there to kind of show off. And I grew up in a family with two parents who were both musicians. Um, they weren't that kind. They were very humble about their music. But uh, I, because of their interest in music, I saw a lot of different performances growing up. And, and there were some that did seem to draw attention. But this isn't about music here. Now, blowing the trumpet sounds like it's about music, but it's actually, uh, they would blow the trumpet whenever people with large amounts of money would put a large amount of money in. It was a way to draw, you know, if, if you'll give so much amount, we will blow the trumpet for you. Coldstone does that, like when you give tips, they'll <laughs> sing for you. And so I feel uncomfortable giving tips because I don't want that kind of attention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Works both uh-huh. ways. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, wanting to get praise from people, how does this fit in the plan of salvation? 
Well, you just say you're being an example to other people. <laughs> a bad example? Well, you're being an example of giving. Of giving. Oh, I see. You got to you could rationalize having the Trump appliance. <laughs> see, other people will give more because I... Yeah. Does the one who owns a cat, the cattle on a thousand hills, uh, is he in, care about how much we give or how little? Or does he care more about what's inside uh, that motivates us to give? Yes. He says, you know, those that are seeking, if this is badly paraphrased, but those that seek attention will be last. Yeah. He, he actually says that's all the praise they'll ever get. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, a, that's about the strongest rebuke Jesus could give because that means they miss out on eternal life. That's because the ultimate praise is, comes from God. Ble- uh, come, you blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Uh, well done, you good and faithful servant. Those are the those are the praises we can expect in, in eternity. Yeah, it isn't Jean that, that we're seeking praise for ourselves, attention to ourselves. Isn't that the very core issue? Uh, sin is about us or about God? Is it? Is it? You know, if you push it, it gets to that very core issue, and that's what you know. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah, I have a friend on Facebook who actually heads a group for children of. I don't remember the exact title, but it's children of narcissistic parents. <laughs> and uh, she does artwork. She she makes things, crafts things to sell to try to minister to this group. And uh, it's I guess it's gotten quite large, <laughs> which means there's a lot of narcissistic parents out there, uh, and and they're abusers. When we focus on ourselves, we become abusive. It's, it's, I don't think we realize how, like you mentioned about music or performance, how, you know, and, you know, this is kind of the very root of what caught Lucifer, you know, in that perfect, this, um, this very insidious in how it can move and it's uh, very, very easy. When we have sinful nature, and it makes, it's really it makes, easy for us. Oh, yes. It makes it, <laughs> It makes it... Um, pride, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and pride can include low self-esteem. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's, it's usually the barricade against the love of God is pride. Because the love of God weakens us. By its very nature, it reduces us to be vulnerable, to be to need... To um, to um, I don't want to put it to to recognize the other person first. Love love calls that out in us. I I had my earliest experience with the love of God happened when I was uh, five years old. I had just come through a year of well, re, not in my recent past. When I was four, I was an atheist. 
I, this, this is what Laura would be. <laughs> and, and I chose to be an atheist because I couldn't see God, and I, I thought my parents were kind of silly to pray to someone they couldn't see. And so uh, I chose to be an atheist. But I didn't, I didn't know the term atheist at the time. I was too little. So I, I just knew I didn't believe in God. And I spent part of a year, I think, in that mode. And then I couldn't find a toy one day, and so I prayed. Uh, well, I, I thought about I, I hunted high and low, and I couldn't find that toy. And I remembered that my mother had read these books called Uncle Arthur's Bedtime Stories <laughs> and how Jesus answered prayers of children. And I, didn't, I thought Uncle Arthur made those up. I didn't think they were real. And so I, but I decided to try it out. So I prayed that God would help me find the toy. And I found it within seconds after I prayed. Well, that's, for a child, that's all it takes. Okay, there is a God. He heard my prayer. But then a year, about a year later, I think it was, a family friend, a very close friend of my father's, Wally Konzak, died of a heart attack across the street from us. And uh, it was pretty traumatic for my family because my dad was so close. and My dad never cried, and he was crying that morning. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so I was really affected by it. It was like, you know, I remembered Mr. Konzak and sitting on the front row when we children had performed at a Vespers at Laurelwood Academy, and he was smiling and, and obviously appreciating us, and now he was gone. And I was like, well, maybe Mom and Dad will some morning be gone too. And it, it really unsettled my my cozy, secure little existence. And it happened, it happened really close to the Youth Congress that was being held in Portland. And we went to it Friday night. And apparently, I, I tried to reconstruct this with Morris Benden years later because he was there. He was pastor of Laurelwood Academy Church that one year. And he thinks it was HMS Richards Sr. that spoke that night. And that makes sense because of what I remember. Uh, it, it fit perfectly, HMS Sr. He preached on Jesus, just the whole sermon. It was probably his best love sermon that he preached that night. And something got through to me. I only half listened. I was just a little kid. Uh, it was a long sermon. But I, something got through to me that, that Jesus loved me, that he really loved me. And it immediately brought me to repentance. And I realized that I shouldn't be mad at my brother all the time. That was, that was the correlative. If Jesus loved me, I should love my brother. It just, that, it triggered that. And so that's what I mean by the love of God triggers this response. If we let it in at all, it immediately helps us think of the other instead of ourselves. And I think that where people resist the love of God is at the point of pride. Because pride wants control. Pride wants to be it. And love trashes that. It really does trash pride. Uh, somewhere there's a statement by Ellen White to that effect that, that it's by the love of God that he transforms pride into humility. Uh, yeah, it's interesting, Jane, you mentioned uh, it's often we think of low self-esteem, humble and that, but when the 
the low self-esteem. I'm just thinking of my, I do my 16 PFs with students. I have a scale for that. Mm-hmm. Boy, if that is down, it inhibits and blocks everything else. You know, it'll distort six or seven of the other factors. But it, it, then we, we protect, and it really is kind of a, you know, uh, a selfish, uh, trying to protect myself, and afraid of everything, you know, very fear-based and all that, where um, the, the love of God sets us free from low self-esteem when you value and worth and acceptance. And a person with low self-esteem, and I, I'm going to speak for myself, Person with low self-esteem is focused on themselves. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. They tend to wallow in that. Yeah. One one minister said it this way: "I feel good about feeling bad." <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of like depression with their. Well, it is a form of depression. It is. I think it really is because depression. I we always know when a depressed patient is doing better. Is it will come in and. It's just always about them and how bad they feel. They'll say, well, how are you doing, Mr. Hammond? You know, <laughs> when they focus out, then you know they're starting to get out of the yeah. muck. <laughs> yeah. But if it's in the muck, in the chemical imbalance, so that you're just it's all focused in on ourselves. And it, actually, one of my favorite treatments for depression, and Spokane and ran the clinic for New Life there. I'd take him out and walk the South Hill. I'd take him out walking with me. And we would, and these are evangelicals I was working for New Life. <laughs> and we would walk, which exercise burns off, you know, it helps serotonin, you know, serotonin release. But then praise God. Everything you say, oh, isn't that beautiful? You focus them out and beyond. And to uh, one of the most powerful things, to lift the depression because you're focusing out or you're focusing on goodness and beauty and love and mercy of God and his gifts to us in nature. I use nature for that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So so this this showy giving and and showy praying, practicing religion in front of others, uh, is a false, totally false religion. Mm. It puts us in an unsafe state. And it's, I, I can't help but think as I read this, it feels like Jesus is doing the Beatitudes again. Mm. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Mm. There's the king. I keep hearing that in the background. Um, okay, uh, Doug, would you please read verses 5? Am I going to do the alms and stuff? The giving? Yeah. Well, that's all, all part of... Uh, controlling your life by uh, buying your way. Yeah, but not letting your left hand know what the right hand does. Uh, yeah, what does that mean? Well, I always thought that was uh, more within yourself, but I think it also relates to uh, people around you, that you don't tell people around you what you're doing. Yeah. And I was thinking of Mead uh, was much like that. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, he had a concept of people complaining, well, why did you help that person or something? And he'd say, I'd rather, how do you wear that? I'd rather help ten people that didn't deserve it than this one that did. <laughs> That's good. And he was giving all the time. 
New Silverado Orchard still practices that. Um, my parents have, have really been blessed by being there. Yeah. There, yeah. There was one uh, individual, people were criticizing me for helping. He put the man through medical school. Uh-huh. The man graduated, never called, said thank you, and never contacted or anything. But he made his whole life. His Took his money and ran. He and his family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, pay for school. Well, I have this in my own my own family. My uncle uh, kind of adopted a, a foreigner when he was overseas. I'll try to disguise this. And uh, another family member was very jealous of mm-hmm. how yeah. that family member yeah. got treated. He got treated a lot better. Yeah. So uh, this this happens to us. I've always thought of not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing is to do it so that you forget about it. You forget that you've done it. You do it so... Um, not keeping a record. Not keeping a record, not even basking in, oh, look what I did, blah, blah, blah. Uh, just, it's become so naturally you don't even... Did I do that? I don't remember. You see, that, that brings us to Matthew 25 and the sheep and the goats. How, I've all, when I in my younger years, I used to wonder how come the sheep don't say, "Oh yes, I remember you said as we did it unto the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me." I mean, some of the sheep know their Bibles, don't they? Why don't? Why are they surprised when Jesus commends them? Yeah. It's because they did it without a thought, and they never th- even thought about the fact they were doing it to Jesus. They did it because they were fulfilling a need. It, it's it's the same kind of thing that you see in a lot of heroes that uh, rescue people or or do something on the spot uh, to minister to other people. The news reporters grab them and, and start interviewing them, and and they they say, "Well, I didn't do anything special. I just did what anybody else would do." Yeah. That's that's to me that's fulfilling what Jesus says here. Uh, that that taking no thought about what you do. Uh, and, and not commending yourself for it. It's written on your heart. The yeah. spirit is in you. Yeah, and it just comes naturally. Okay, Ed, would you please read verses 5 and 6? And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they had their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. None of us have a problem with that one, do we? People today don't like to pray in public. <laughs> we live in a society that, that probably has gone the other extreme. We, uh, religion is something private, something we do in private, and we don't do it in public. So how do we apply this? I'm certain it still has application. Well, I think one thing is the concept that you're really focused on your prayer and, the, and God and not on other things. Okay. So it's a, it's a real time to really focus. Maybe get attention. away from media, social media. Turn off the phone. Stop tweeting. 
How do you develop integrity in your prayer life? Because, like, say, like, you're in a restaurant and you're with some friends and they're not too interested in prayer and whatnot. And they're your closest of friends, and say, like, before your meal and you're used to, like, praying before it. How do you have, like, the courage to do it without, like, you don't want to offend anybody? Does that make sense? The rest of you want to... I, I have my own answer, but I don't want to be the, the last word on this. You say it quickly, do you... How do the rest of you feel about that? It's a, it's a real situation that you're talking about. I'm just thinking of Daniel's example. He didn't change his pattern for anybody, <laughs> you know. But you know, there is it is it is hard to know sometimes what. Well, Daniel. Daniel was being contested, yeah. and I don't think that this is a, no, it's the same no, it situation. Um, the thing I wouldn't want to do is force them to pray. No. That would be very disingenuous. Yeah. I think I, I personally would just bow my head yeah. and say a silent prayer, make it on the brief side, yeah. and, and move on. And chances are they're all talking and hardly notice you. You want to traumatize everybody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you had had a had a child along, the child might make it a little different. Because my parents were in a restaurant one time with my brother when he was built small, about two, and uh, they asked him to pray, and so he prayed. And when he got to the man, a, the end, he said, Amen, real loud. <laughs> the whole restaurant just exploded. <laughs> That's, I think, the best you can do under that situation. And, and you're, you're pricking them a little if they see you. Uh, and that's good. That's healthy. Uh, kind of bring them back around. Uh, any other applications? Can't we apply this in principle to anything we do for a show? Yeah, I think the key is is the, the hypocrite where they love to pray standing. They love the show. Yeah. It isn't about praying. It's about, yeah, it's about loving the attention. Exactly. Of the, of the show. It could be for anything. Yeah. Isn't, you know, it isn't that playing and praying in public is wrong, but um, it's uh, you're you're in that different zone. Yeah. You ever ever Gene? I remember as a young minister. You know, you think you had a really good sermon and you put this thing together and it would just fall flat as everything. And I finally learned you need this, you're spending time with God to be in a zone. This is, Lord, it's not about me, it's about you. You have this whole process that I would go through Sabbath morning or, and, you know, and it would, he would take, you're in a different, it's a different zone. It isn't about you and how the nice talk you're giving about. No. It's about the Spirit of God it's, showing up. It's about, it about who you're sharing. Yeah, it gave you a different freedom. The focus is on the message about Him. It wasn't about how am I doing. Yeah. And did you ever, start, ever experience that? If I ever do, I panic. <laughs> there, there are. What, what usually happens to me is not in, in, the, in the in the preparing the sermon. I tend to be focused on God. It, it's but what what can I share about you? Yeah. Um, when I'm in the pulpit, I get these 
weird moments when I'm suddenly very self-conscious, mm-hmm. very conscious of me being up there in front of everybody, and 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 I just about panic and freeze and and can't do anything. As long as I'm focused on him and on my congregation, uh, fine. But if I have that, that, and I don't know what causes that, it just happens. But maybe it's to make me more dependent, or at least I can use it that way. So I, yeah, I think, I, I know that in teaching I've battled this. I haven't so much, because I don't do a lot of sermons. So sermons, sermons happen once in a while. But um, in teaching, um, my first ten years of teaching, I, w- I would come out of every class feeling like a failure. Mm-hmm. And it, it had to do with dynamics in the department and things. Mm-hmm. And I fed too much off of that. And finally one day I said, you know, this is all wrong. This is not, this is not about you. This is about him. And I think God took my decision and worked with it, and I got past that. And, and now, for me, teaching is a, a walking with God. Yeah. It, is, uh, it is wholly depending on him. I, I may plan out a class. I may prepare a handout. But I am dependent on the Holy Spirit for what I teach. And, and students that take my classes know that I don't use notes. I may use a handout for their sake so that they have something they can see visually and, and relate to. But I have to rely totally on God because to me this is, this is what makes a class what it can be in a dynamic way in, in meeting people, all, all the different minds in my class. Uh, has to be about him. Yeah, I think I think this principle uh, we can find it in so many different settings and so many different ways. If if we could just forget ourselves, blessed are those who are hung, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, a person hungry and thirsty for righteousness isn't centered on themselves. They're centered on that righteousness, and that righteousness is God's righteousness. If we're focused on Him, the kind of person He is, we could do so much more good than if we are constantly focusing on us and me. I've often thought of that. um, If I could just forget, totally forget myself, think what a wonderful day it would be. What's a healthy way of focusing on God? Like, what does that look like? Is it different for everyone? Is there like a base, like, simple way? Anybody want to help out here? I, I, I hesitate to tell my own story. I've worn it out. Well, I want to interject and go back to our previous conversation on the musicians. You know, sometimes the musicians, there's a tendency to, um, to make it about themselves and, and to... To, to make a show instead of glorify God in their, in their music. You know, but even Christ, when he was on earth, he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. So a speaker or a musician, uh, their intent should be to, to uplift Christ. Now, now there, there's, let's, let's go back to that. I, if I be lifted up, what's he talking about? I be lifted up. If, if Christ, if his character is lifted up then? Or... Actually, what is he talking about? He's talking about something physical and real. 
the crucifixion. The crucifixion. It's when we are crucified, when we suffer, that we are best at ministering for God. And that's the painful reality that we tend to shun. I I showed this in in Women of the Bible this week. Uh, sermon by uh, Cassia Rings Bennett. She's a doctoral student at the University of Chicago. And she really nailed us as a church. You know, we've been focusing on women equality and equality, equality. And there's room for that because Ellen White said that our unity is found in the equality of all believers. But she pointed out that she took Paul as an example. To him, being an apostle was not about... I am of Apollos and I am of Paul. She was using 1 Corinthians. But it was about Christ and everything. And that meant suffering. In Paul's day, it meant suffering for Jesus to follow him. And to be a minister meant to suffer. And so she said, in so many words, we are called, meaning ministers, to suffer. And it's in that suffering that we can best help other people and bring and 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 if we can focus on Jesus when we're suffering we can then focus on him when we're preaching teaching healing ministering in whatever way we do you know Jean, I think like we were talking about is is being in that posture I remember when I was a young bible teacher in high school uh, I thought out there was a direct correlation to see in myself, I think Ellen White makes a statement, when you're at the foot of the cross, when you're prostrate at the foot of the cross, you're at the highest point. I mean, you're the best point you can be. <laughs> you are at the highest point. The highest because, point. <laughs> because that is the basis of God's yeah. sovereignty, right there. And I found out there's a direct correlation. It was, this is in the 70s, and you had rowdy kids, and just say, well, what do we have to do with these Bible blah, blah, you know, you know, they were right. struggle culturally. And I remember the there was a direct correlation to my submission and humbleness before God. And I felt I am no more worthy than any you know, I'm in that position. My ability to love these kids that are fighting me in class or having difficulty with than my posture with God. And I think uh, maybe that's what we're talking about. We do because uh, you then, get into that posture with God to just say, "Lord, this is about you." Because you were vulnerable, they felt your authenticity at that moment. I think that's what it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That you could relate. They could relate to you better. Yeah. The reason I say that is because my my pedagogical training. I mean, college teachers aren't taught pedagogy. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to learn it somehow by osmosis. <laughs> <laughs> My pedagogical training took place in academy as I watched my teachers. I, I observed what worked and what didn't. Yeah. And what worked is a teacher who was authentic. authentic, laid back, humble, not trying to control the classroom. Uh, big enough to handle if a kid threw a air, paper airplane at him, was big enough to just pick it out of the air and throw it back. You know, just and, and it, then then kids don't get any mileage out of it, and so they don't keep doing it. It's like, oh well, you know, uh, we feel kind of foolish now. So, and, and keeping keeping your eyes on Jesus comes best out of a close relationship with Him. That is, um, spending time 
in the word, asking the question, what does this tell me about God? And wrestling with problems. Wrestling with problems in the Bible. Why did, why did God do this? Why did he do that? That's, that's how it's been for me. The more I can spend time with him, the better I can focus on him. I think it's, I just asked that question because I think my body and my mind's wrestling with the concept of suffering. I mean, instinctively, I don't want to suffer. No, nobody does. So that's why I find it difficult to be one-on-one with, with God like that. We don't like to submit either. <laughs> so would it help to ask, uh, to expound on the idea that the cross is the sovereignty of God? Mm-hmm. You want me to expound on that? Well, you're it's, looking it's, it up, it reminds me of, of so much, uh, let's say in other countries where I've gone to church and you see people uh, beating themselves or uh, crawling on their knees across the church courtyard, you know, um, all kind of concepts that appear as if they're dealing with the cross. And you wonder in their minds how they're viewing all that. If they come up to the cross. And I was thinking like in Italy, the, the young widows all in black and they're around the tomb of Mary because they claim it's in, in Italy there uh, on the corrugated marble, you know. Mm-hmm. They're suffering. They're suffering. That's not the kind of suffering I'm talking about. Uh, to me, the, the sovereignty of God is the cross and the Philippians too. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any sharing in the Spirit, any sympathy, you think about all those things. Those are all ministry types of things. But they're selfless. They're outside oneself. Complete my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, being united and agreeing with each other. Don't do anything for selfish purposes, but with humility, think of others as better than yourselves. That causes suffering. I mean, we can't do that without suffering. We could if we weren't, if we were totally hum- humble and and loving and all of those things. We wouldn't suffer at all. But it's our pride and our ego and our self that that suffers. You know, it's kind of a paradox because. You know, when, when, when that happens, when you look at the situation, and you kind of catch, and you, you feel the most centered, the most peaceful, the most whole, that we were designed for that. We weren't designed to be narcissists or designed to be authoritarians or designed to be. But you have this, you say, oh, but then we're kind of scared to be there. We got to go back to these old systems to. Well, our default. It's our default. <laughs> But it is a first. Wake up the next morning and start over. <laughs> That's what most of us do, especially the older we are. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming a human being. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God highly honored him and gave him a name above all names. So that at the name of Jesus, everyone on heaven, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth might bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This, this is actually, if, if you take this and put it beside Isaiah 14, the, where you have the, the fall of Lucifer, this is the diam- paradigmatic opposite. It is, I believe that Paul had that passage in mind as he crafted this, because it is so close as opposite. Uh, Lucifer says, I will be like the most, I will, I will, I will, and he, he's brought low to the dust. Jesus humbles himself, takes on the role of a slave, goes to the point of death, the death of a criminal, and as a result, God exalts him. So the, the, the cross is his throne. It is the, the basis of his throne. And that, the humility of God is, is the way he runs things. He is a very humble God, but it had to be demonstrated because, of course, Satan claimed that God was selfish, narcissistic, authoritarian, and all the rest. So this is the length to which he had to go to demonstrate his humility. Gene, I had a, a professor at seminary named Carson Johnson, if you ever ran into Carson, probably the most humble. He had a, he, he's very hard to listen to. He's had a real stutter, lived in efficiency apartments with us. And this concept was one of the first things that hit me in those early years and training in my life. He said, what is the glory of God? His coordination, his, his power, his majesty. It's a cross. It's a cross. Is that is that coming? He said the coming downness is the glory of God. Who is this again? Doctor Carson Johnson. Oh, Carson Johnson. But it was, it, he really understood that concept. Never heard him explain that. And it's just kind of overwhelming because it's such different than it's 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 opposite system. to human nature. It's opposite. <laughs> His <laughs> coming down is, or our coming down is, is a glory of God. To think of others greater than yourself, to just serve it, you know, that, mm-hmm. that is, that is. Uh, Can you imagine Jesus, who is God, and who, you know, he, he tests the, the rich young ruler when he says, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Why do you call me good? <laughs> no one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus is God saying that. So he could be testing him. Are you you saying that I'm God? Or are you just trying to flatter me? So so this thing of, of goodness, to think of Jesus thinking of others better than himself or treating them as though they were better than himself, which you think about all his ministry and and how he treated people one on one. Did he treat people better than himself? And Gene, I don't think that's that. I don't think that's possible without a total immersion in the Spirit. You know, I mean, we don't have that in our nature. <laughs> it's so easy. It's, yeah. You know, it comes. It comes by asking for it, mm-hmm. and then be prepared to, to, to suffer.
That's exactly what's going to happen. If you pray for humility, you're going to suffer. And that's where I struggle because I, because you ever like you ask to serve and you finally get the opportunity to serve, and then you do it, and then you kind of for some reason my human nature side, whatever you want to call it, expects like, an easy way out. That as you put the time in practice, um, and the right thing, which yeah, and you should get like kind of almost like credit somehow, or you get some kind of like pat on the back. But no, it's more like sometimes. You get a kick in the rear. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, I don't know, I feel like I've burned myself for so long and I've forgotten this concept that to really serve God, it really does come with a tinge of suffering. Yeah. Some of these cycles early on, they must have figured this out because, you know, it's... They had great joy. You know, blessed are those who are who secure. rejoice when they're rejoicing because they get to yeah. suffer with Jesus for Him. Yeah. We I'm don't not, teach that concept. I'm not saying no. that you all, that you as teachers are suffering, but for example, you know, you all are in a a line of work that doesn't uh, give you the rewards that some other careers do. You know. And so, in a way, you're in the background and you're, you're laboring hard, but you, you guys teach because you, of the satisfaction that brings you. You get to change the lives. My, of my students are my inspiration. That, teaching. May, that may be the motivation for uh, suffering in a sense and not having the rewards that other jobs might bring. You, you have to find your inspiration in something other than uh, some kind of reward. The, the whole reward concept of somebody bestowing on you a blessing. Because you did so good. <laughs> that that whole concept is artificial construct. It's not real. It's it's, it's totally nonsense. See, that's hard because that's like ever since we're growing up, like little kids, like you, know, you want to have the cookie after the, uh, dinner, and then you have to clean your room. <laughs> yeah, you know, we think that if we get the right performance. But the, the, the real reward, and this comes out of psychology, I heard a counselor tell me this, uh, the real reward is how do you feel about yourself when you do something that you should? Well, you feel better. You feel more whole, more complete. You have satisfaction and my room is clean. The cookie only lasts a few seconds. <laughs> it gives you a sugar high, which you don't need. So, so I, I think... I think our problem is we have lived in an artificial universe for so long that we have lost touch with the reality God designed us to experience. Gene, I think that's why the gospel, for all of us, it is so hard to get it to really set it and, and sink in because everything in our culture, in our world, we have to our earn employment it. is reward-based. Yeah, we have to earn it. And that earn, earn it. it is is We're so is conditioned the that way to have something, well, it's free. No, no, can't, no can't, can't be free. What, what are the strings attached? No, no. And, and I, I teach that originally, when God created human beings, we were in grace. Grace in the New Testament, charis means gift, and everything was free. Adam and Eve did not earn their air conditioning. They did not earn. They didn't need air conditioning, but they didn't. They earn a house. They didn't need a house. Um, didn't even cultivate the soil to they, they didn't have to pull weeds they didn't have they didn't have to earn anything That's a good they, all they had to do was have relationships 
with the animals, with themselves, with each other, with God. That's all. Right. Um, I think of when we're talking about rewards uh, <laughs> from God, uh, the inheritance that God gave to the 12 tribes, the Levites specifically, he said, they will have no inheritance. I will be their inheritance. Um, and I think of that concept as uh, that their reward is a constant communion with God on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, of course, the material... Uh, Basic things that they need, you know, that they get from the sacrificial system, that food. Yeah, you know, maybe maybe that was God's way of offsetting something that Moses said to them when when they slaughtered the three thousand people after the golden calf. He says, "This day you have earned for yourselves the right of ordination to the priesthood." And <laughs> I think maybe God was trying to offset this. If you haven't earned anything, <laughs> I've given you this, and I'm your inheritance. Just a, a friendly correction. They actually, Adam and Eve, actually, they did uh, cultivate soil in the Garden of Eden, according to fundamentals of education. And also, I sympathize with Justin in his uh, concern because sometimes, for example, say for example, Clear Lake, that's a ministry that we have here, but, you know, so again, teachers, they teach um, not for money, obviously, but because the satisfaction of changing the lives of their students. So, you might have to accept the fact that there's no reward, or you may not get to see the result of your teaching, just like a, a canvasser, they come and do the canvas books, they don't get to see the person they baptize. They don't really get to see anything, they're just going from door to door selling books. You know, and clearly they could just feeding people and then saying a prayer and leaving, you know, and really they have other people, you know, other churches out there that are giving them the things they need. So, what does someone do? Do you just accept, you know? Or it's really something for us to pray about. You know, would help us to accept that we may not feel like we're making a difference. But does that make sense? Our, our wonderful egocentric feelings that dominate and control us. You know the hierarchy. You need you need to read a book by Tim Jennings. Uh, he's a psychiatrist who has. Uh, it's called Could it be? Could it be that simple or something like that? Is it that simple? Yeah. And he shows how we were designed to have reason and control. And by reasoning, you don't mean cold, hard logic, but but all the reasoning powers, which both left and right frontal lobes. And that our feelings, if, if we allow our feelings to dominate, we're out of sync. And that's the cause of all kinds of mental illnesses and, and all kinds of of distress. I know I'm probably poorly representing him uh, in this, but but our feelings, let's face it, our feelings are rooted in all of the life's experiences, but not just the experiences. It's rooted in how we've handled those experiences or mishandled them. So that our feelings are simply the, the result of, of our tendency to feel pushed down stomped down, oppressed by other people, not not highly esteemed, not, you know, it's, it's, it's again our egocentric whole mechanism of how we, we deal with that. And so our feelings are that. 
And, and the way to change our feelings is to take them to God, I believe. To take them to God, be honest with them. Tell God exactly how I feel. And ask Him to fill me with His love. And to, to heal all that woundedness, all that self-battering I've done to myself. Uh, using the mechanisms of maybe other people have hurt me. Maybe they have uh, done things to me that have, have threatened my security and my well, sense of well-being. But ask God to heal that with His love. And He can do that and so transform me from the inside out if I let Him. That He becomes my satisfaction and my reward. He really does. And Gina, I really feel like First John 1, 9, that's the text I use for extraction of abuse. Um, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we, if we, confess, we confess our sins. If you just say, Lord, you confess it to him. He says, I will give you my gift of forgiveness, yeah. and I will cleanse you from all yeah. unrighteousness. He, he does that. And, and that's the problem is that we try to do it to ourselves. And all we do is wound ourselves further. I had a client this week struggling for months and months and finally having panic attacks and depression and getting married in about two months and stuck, I gotta get rid of this, let's do it. And that explained to her the process and this. But it's it's amazing, but it's back to this gift thing. That that isn't in, in humanistic psychotherapy there's no method for extracting post-traumatic trauma. There's all kinds of mechanisms we use to minimize it to, so we can function and try to relabel it and restructure it. But there's nothing that says, I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will pour my spirit in there and he'll fill it with his love. We've had hate and anger and fear. <laughs> it is an incredible you know, gift that... Uh, that he gives us, and that to me, that always that this is the million dollar gift. It's just, this is like salvation. Yeah. I think I think at the end of the day, when we really experience this, we come to the place where we know within our total being that anything good we have is borrowed. It's all Absolutely his. Borrowed. It's it's it, nothing is in ourselves. And we and we were designed we were designed to be that way in the beginning. That it isn't that we're created. It isn't because we're so sinful that we we just are so helpless. We were designed to be in relationship with God and be other centered and be be totally emptied of self. That's how God created us. And and all God is asking is that we allow Him to give that back to us. So salvation to me is is so much bigger, and we need to quit (laughs) so we can get to church. Love it. Let's let's pray. Father, I pray that uh, you who have suffered ahead of us have emptied yourself, have given up everything, every prerogative you had as God to demonstrate the depths to which you are willing to go. That we may give up our puny self-righteousness, our filthy rags, and our puny hanging on to ourselves. And that we might just allow you to love through us for others and to become centered beyond ourselves to you 
and to those whom you love, for you love the whole world. Thank you for this, in Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name.